Hello and welcome to Deep Impact, a proud member of the Doof Network where we dive deep into Wildbo's most underappreciated work five years on. Coming up next is Elliot Diebold. And that was Ruben Moyhouse. And we are back to talk about Damages 2.x. Um, take yeah. all that big old plot stuff, Elliot, and let's just put that in the corner. <laughs> Today we're talking about world building. <laughs> no, I mean, this makes sense. Like the last chapter, as as we sort of mentioned, ended on this get one of the three major practitioner accessories within yeah. a month. And so now, of course, yeah. we move straight into a chapter that gives us more info on all three of those, which means I, I'm not really sure which one Blake may ultimately end up going for, but it's great to have more details on all of them. Yeah, I think we didn't really have the context to know exactly what each of them meant. We we kind of did. We know Mrs. Lewis last chapter told us the loose interpretation of, of what they all represent, but it's good to actually get some examples so we can put that into practice. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I'd say the theme of this chapter is examples that are outside Jacob's Bell, which is useful. <laughs> yeah, even just examples in general, I guess, is, a, is, mm. is a, the alternate title for, for 2.6, uh, 2.x. So yeah, that's what this chapter is. Uh, it's a weird one to summarize because, because <laughs> it doesn't really have a plot. It has uh, case studies and then just one bit, which is like a textbook. So I guess let's go. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I just wanted to say, I, I would have said this is basically all just a textbook chapter and yep. like, you, you know, you're really deep into a story when like, I was very excited when I was like, oh sweet. It's just like textbooks on familiars. Like <laughs> imagine how much easier high school and university would have been if I'd gotten this excited about the textbooks for subjects I did there. Yeah. And it kind of makes you think we've had beats, uh, previously in this story of how, how, tedious Blake and Rose are finding all the reading that they're doing. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess we're not at that point yet. <laughs> no, I mean, maybe if my life was on the line and I had literally hundreds of books to choose from, I'd, yeah. uh, that would dampen the thing. But for right now, I'm getting some little pages. I'm like, yes, give it to me. Yeah, and, and I guess the books they have to read are just like lists of deaths and stuff, <laughs> which obviously aren't as fun as, as these ones are. Um, Well, let's get into it. Let's get into our first case study here, which is talking about a case study that is just an interview of a woman and her familiar. So the woman, whose name is Annabelle, is a shaman, uh, a a type of practitioner that basically imbues objects with power, and her familiar is called Tromos, Steed of Enyo. (laughs) (laughs) And he he was a, a steed of a kind of dark goddess kind of type. Um, and when uh, she kind of stopped being believed in, he adapted into something else to kind of stay alive. Um, yeah. And now and, and they're I, best buds. <laughs> I love how this, this opens, though, because it feels like, you know, when you go to read like an interview with someone in, in an article like online, and, and it always opens with this preface that describes where the interview's happening yep. and what the interviewee looks like. And I, I, I it, it, it just perfectly captures that sense. Um, it was great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess that's all the plot summary that kind of we need to do about this part of the book. This part of, of this chapter seems to be about how the balance of power between a familiar and their master works yeah. for most of the cases. Like, this seems like a fairly standard case, right? Maybe they have a, a bit of a better relationship than than is traditional, but um, and more of a kind of level relationship than is traditional, but this seems to be basically how a familiar-master relationship would work. Well, this seems like an ideal one. Like, she's a powerful shaman, 
He's a powerful spirit that kind of complements her skills. They have a good yep. relationship, and she said she was lord of the city that she's in. So um, I think clearly it's meant to serve as an example of like how, when things go right, um, which is kind of contrasted with the the one we'll get to uh, later. But I like how e- even then like <laughs> we're we're still getting other little tidbits of information. Like we find out exactly what a shaman is, and yep. um, we get these hints, or we get more hints that go into this whole thing of how belief powers things like it's very Discworld or american gods where you know as belief in the gods disappeared so did their power um yeah that's that's very much small gods terry pratchett stuff Um, yeah there's also something i like that is hinted at here uh where annabelle makes reference to something called the rule of threes um and it's <laughs> it's kind of just another example of uh, uh, literary devices and metaphors just operating as real things in this world, which I love. <laughs> um, yeah. So the specific example is uh, the way that Annabelle met, Tro- uh, met Tromos, who became uh, her familiar, is he was set upon her and kind of fucked her up really badly once. The second time it was less so, and the third time she kind of turned it around. And uh, because it was the third time, there's this rule of threes where the third time kind of has this inherent power and people believe in it more and therefore it's more important of a victory that she was able to kind of turn it around. Um, Yeah. Which is, you know, I mean, it's literally just a literary device that exists now because that's kind of the way Pact works (laughs) is things things that are dramatic kind of just work in this world, um, which is great. I love it. Yeah, and that's a bit of a revert- uh, yeah. That's an, another bit of a recurring theme in this chapter is um, we're constantly seeing how uh, stuff is powered by how people think it would work, and mm. we even see some examples of how changes in those trends change the balances of power. Yeah, I think we'll really get into that when we talk about the domains. Um, yeah, how people think they work really reflects how they do work. Um, Anyway, uh, in, in this part of the chapter, we also kind of talk more about what it looks like for a, for a master to kind of draw power from a familiar and why others enter into these relationships willingly. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, so we get, we get uh, some, some uh, of the reasoning that Tremos has entered into this relationship. Basically, he, he says he doesn't need to eat. It's as though he doesn't need to eat or sleep for a period of time while he's kind of bonded uh, to Annabelle here. Um, and while he's doing that, his power can grow. And sure, she will siphon some of it off, but he trusts her enough that he thinks he will have more power at the end. Seems like a good deal. He doesn't really, like, <laughs> decay or age yeah. in in that kind of sense. Which, I mean, I think this was the intention of that line, but that immediately drew my mind to Rose. Like, the concept that he, when he's as a familiar, it clearly changes the, the rules of how an other works. Um, yeah. And so, you know, like, specifically calling out that he doesn't degrade seems in, designed yes. to, to make me think, oh, well, that's something Rose could apparently use. Yeah, it's it's very specifically, it seems very specifically <laughs> pointed at like, hey, Rose, you're going to degrade. Oh, but others don't degrade. Mm, yeah. what, what's going on there? Uh, yeah, uh, w- especially what... considering we've kind of hit the vestige point a few times in the past chapter. Yeah. What, what's also interesting is so the type of power you get is dependent on the familiar. So... Um, 
you know, this this lady sort of goes on about how she can't like really touch people anymore because when she touches them, they sort of get nightmares because that's Tromos's power and yeah, that that kind of leaks through her and so it's so, I mean that's that's obviously important. Like that's probably the, one of the biggest factors you have to consider as a practitioner is mm. what kind of power you're getting, not just how much. Like you know, yeah, like Blake sort of had it recommended to him that maybe Barbatorum would be a good familiar, but you gotta wonder what the <laughs> hell kind of effects that would have on him. And we've seen the Briar I mean, Girl uh, as potentially an example of how the, bad the- it can go. Yeah. There's a reason skin flaying has been set up so much at the start of this story, Elliot. Because if he <laughs> if he if he bonds with Barbatorum, you know there's just gonna be flayed skin going everywhere. Um, yeah, I <laughs> I think so. We kind of highlight the downsides of the type of other that you choose as your familiar there, where where Annabelle obviously can't form intimate relationships with people because they just get nightmares. Yeah, um, but it does shore up a weakness for her, like as a strength, right? So she's someone who's very able to kind of do head-to-head melee combat, I guess I would refer to it as. <laughs> um, but she's not able to deal with the more kind of theoretical or abstract threats, but because Tromos has this kind of different way of dealing with these threats, this kind of nightmare or yeah, a more abstract way of dealing with those kinds of threats, he's able to kind of lend her power in that regard when those situations come up. Yeah. And then we ended on this nice little note that Tromos likes her so much that after she dies, he's going to somehow adopt her into being in the nightmares he gives people, which is yeah, like a Equally horrifyingly touching. And ter- terrifying, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, which again is like, I mean, this is something that doesn't seem like it should be possible, right? Um, and we kind of hit mm. that beat a bit throughout this chapter, the idea of people who are humans for all intents and purposes um becoming more other and and i guess you know we've kind of hit parts of that with briar girl and stuff like that but this is really hinting that the the line between practitioner and other blurs more than we might think it it should yeah it definitely lends credence to rose senior's uh opinions on labeling everything uh it seems like there's not really any there's not really any rules uh anywhere yeah i mean you know any rules can be broken in the right context um, yeah, exactly. So the next the next portion of the book is uh is really just a textbook. <laughs> I mean like <laughs> there's no way to get around it. Um basically it just explores a number of common uh, implements examining them through three different dimensions that they might use to ex- explore kind of what they would say about a practitioner and how they would be used. So yeah. These three dimensions are the declarative, what the implement is and what it says about you. The authoritative, what it conveys when it's used, and the socio-cultural, which is the kind of societal context of who would use that kind of implement. Yeah, and at least for me, there was a bit of a two-way street with figuring out those categories exactly. Like, I needed the examples to understand exactly what each category meant, Mm. and Mm. I needed the three categories to understand exactly uh, how the object works. So there was was an interesting bit of, like, a catch-22 as I was... The first time I was reading through this, um, yeah. But you know, yeah. this is another section that uh, explicitly brings up uh, the concept that uh, over time, these symbols sort of change. Um, so it, mm. it goes into the chalice as something that was traditionally like a female implement, and then as um, sort of gender equality has taken over most of the world, um, there's been like a massive trend away from that. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, it's worth kind of pointing out that. This a lot of the implements here make explicit reference to 
the phallic nature of the implements, right? Yeah. So the sword, the wand, uh, the staff kind of makes a reference there. Or uh, the chalice kind of pointed out as the inverse of that, like an explicitly female implement, um, which again I think is meant to highlight this like very traditional aspect to, to the practice, right? It, it, it is a very traditional world, which are beats that we kind of were hitting at in the last interlude and since then. Um, and so it makes sense that it's, you know, there, there are traditional gender roles kind of baked into a lot of these implements or the declarative, declarative aspects of them at least. Yeah, but again, I feel like this is something, it's saying more about how gender roles are viewed in the world of Pact than it is about the actual gender roles. Mm. And I think that was the point of bringing up how things like the chalice are switching to being just, mm. you know, people are picking what suits them, not what, like, suits their gender. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, this story was written five years ago, but I don't think that, I, I, I even think this feels a bit, like, out of date for the time then, which makes me think that this is trying to imply the practice is, you know, quite traditional, yeah. quite... Yeah, yeah definitely. Con- yeah. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I I wanted to kind of pull out as a little fun... I mean, there's no plot to summarise here. Like, I don't know what we're going to say about this <laughs> section. It's just really interesting. Like, it's, a, it's an interesting way to explore the kind of... Uh, yeah, th- th- like <laughs> uh, literary purposes of these different things, right? Um, and mm. we we won't kind of break it all down, but it's fun. You should go read it. It's just a fun little little section. Um, but what I did want to point out here is we are talking about implements, and this is obviously in the context of Blake having to potentially do one of these rituals. Um, so it begs the question: which of the implements that are listed do you think would suit Blake? I mean, I, I didn't really think any of them sounded particularly Blake. Um, maybe the scepter, if you, if you asked me to definitely choose one of the ones that was listed. But, um, mm. I mean, there was even, like, a little list of extra ones at the end that had, like, lantern and, and tome and stuff. And then one was just listed as standard. Now, I don't think standard <laughs> is a noun, and I googled this to check. No. <laughs> so I don't know what exactly that means. I think... Now, I have heard that be used in reference to like, like a symbol, like like a symbol you would see on a kind of flag or something like that. Um, okay. So maybe it's to do with that. That kind of feels like what it could be. Uh, but you're right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, <laughs> I guess that's different to an emblem, which was also listed. Um, yep. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I, I'm wrong. <laughs> I was thinking. I, like, I I had an interesting thought. I, I I don't think this is what it's going to be, but I was thinking about Blake and how he likes to be doing stuff, and and he's quite mm. handy and everything. And I was thinking, just like a good pair of work boots, be a good implement. Mm. He can just kick his spells into stuff. I think that'd be a cool yeah. imagery. He's uh, a handyman. He's on the <laughs> run. He he likes kicking ass. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, for sure. Uh, it does. I think it makes sense as a as a familiar. Maybe. I mean, you know. The the symbolism around the keys from earlier on with with him using them in his in his ritual, I like. I think that's very on point. I think key, keys really do symbolise a lot of what Blake is. Um, yeah, hatchet hatchet. I think would have been a good one as well, but it, he already mm. used the hatchet uh, to put June in. So yeah, Wildbo's already used all his all his <laughs> good ideas. We don't know what's going to come up next. I mean, I'm sure there is a way. To... Well, he's, no, he's. He... 
He's used all the obvious ones. Um. <laughs> <laughs> He's taken them all off the table. So exactly. It's really hard to theorize about it. Yeah, sure. Um, so something I like about this section is it basically ends with some homework that Wildbo is assigning to people who like to do fan theories. Um, <laughs> it, basically, the, the textbook explicitly says, here's some homework. Try to think of the declarative, authoritative, and sociocultural aspects of the other 15 common implements and then just lists them. Um, I, th- <laughs> I love that this is basically just Wildbo giving out homework. I find it very fun. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and, yeah, for sh- obviously there are answers to this in the comments of the post, um, and we'll kind of break down some of them later on, I think. Uh, yeah. But I just thought that was a funny thing to do. And a good way to get, like, involved with the world building, right? Yeah. It, I, like, I wonder if Wildbo potentially got value out of seeing everyone speculate to kind of make sure he's getting his points across or something. Yeah, interesting. I wonder. Um so why don't you take talk about this next one, Elliot? Because I know you're you're keen to start the conversation about it. Yeah. So then, so so next we enter some selections from a book on domains, uh, and we examine this hypothetical practitioner called Fiona, uh, who has just established her domain and sort of talks about you know what you do with an established domain, common pitfalls and advantages, um, and like you know just from the start, it's just a very wholesome family-friendly uh, example of what you can do with a domain. Yeah. Well, yeah. So she's just kind of won the challenge for, for staking her claim. And she goes off to, you know, get out of it for a while, which is something the text talks about. But when she comes back, the first thing she does is turn it into a womb. Uh, and so this is a hypothetical practitioner, right? Yeah. But it feels very specific. Very specific. Um. Well, what's interesting is... I mean, for what is literally meant to be a textbook example, uh, it's pretty gruesome. <laughs> like, it's just gross. Um, you know, like, she makes the walls extra fleshy um, and, like, Moist she turns is clock, a word that clock ticking there. into heartbeats. Um, yeah. it's, it's very hard not to tie this to some stuff going on in Ward uh, right now. Um, mm. But, yeah, it's just great how it's, like, the whole thing's so wholesome and then it's just... Just right, right in the middle of a sentence, it's just like, and then Fiona turns the walls into flesh, and it's like, wait, what? Yeah, and you're like, oh, hold on, hold on. Yeah, she's, it's talking about how she like went and spent time with some friends that she didn't have time to hang out with because of the domain stuff, and then it kind of comes back to her coming home and turning it into a flesh, a flesh apartment. Um, yeah. I, <laughs> so putting putting the weird flesh stuff aside for a second um (laughs) this section does as we talked about uh before kind of make an example of how a domain is influenced by how the the practitioner that owns the domain kind of sees it right Mm. um yeah so the textbook explicitly points out as a common pitfall like don't think that a domain should be this or that because then it will become that this or that and this is why that's bad basically yeah, well, you essentially, as a practitioner, you're essentially getting a space that you, you, you know, I think the text explicitly says you're kind of a, a god within. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you have to be careful because humans don't make very good gods. There's been a lot of uh, <laughs> literature on that. Um, yeah. And, you know, you can let your subconscious uh, have negative effects that run away from you if you're not careful. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think something else that was interesting about this is it, it kind of talks about the type of power that you get from it um, and how when you first make a domain, you will kind of be disappointed that it's you don't feel more powerful in it. 
Um, yeah. Because the the text kind of suggests that the real power of, of a domain isn't inherent. It kind of comes from this magical rent of a sort that, that others who kind of are around and want to be around will kind of pay tribute to you now that you've claimed that land basically yeah i i got the sense that it's more the process of claiming a domain kind of scares off a lot of the um spirits and stuff and you basically want to create an environment where they want to come back um and so the power of your domain is tied into how healthy it is in terms of like numbers of spirits and and yeah so so yeah it's kind of like a rent but it's almost a more just inherent uh, thing and, and so you know that kind of calls into question you know things like the flesh thing that probably appeals to certain types of spirits like you know yeah you want to you, you've kind of you've kind of got to read the room as you're shaping your domain if you want to maximize how much power it's getting from you basically yeah i i think it's also worth pointing out that this kind of contextualizes uh johannes's domain a lot more like this kind of demonstrates why that is such a good strategy because he now has created a situation where a lot of others want to come and hang out in this domain and therefore his power is going to be quite high as a result yeah i mean we still just have that big question of like how do you do it um yeah which i'm hoping we'll get an answer to one day uh no comment so (laughs) um i think it's also worth pointing out that uh since the power of a domain is tied to the 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 spirits and the others that are around it and and being them kind of <laughs> having them kind of be on side um having a domain seems problematic to Blake right like he is mm. someone who is so hated in his circumstance that potentially having a domain wouldn't get him the same level of power as it could for a different practitioner yeah well that'll that that might be where where all the stuff about you know playing to the to the environment will come in like he he may mm. want to try and create an environment in his domain that encourages whatever the local spirits are uh to come like because you know particularly like for sentient others he's probably really going to struggle um yeah but for just like natural spirits i mean they're quite animalistic so if he's just creating an environment they like he should still be okay but yeah it's it i i think this is the part that i the least kind of see it tying directly back into blake this this part of the chapter um, and I think this is this is the nugget mm. that we're trying to look at here is domain the d- power from a domain isn't just inherent it's based on relationships to others and spirits and so yeah. that's why I think we're exploring it a bit here is because <laughs> for Blake that's a that's an interesting uh, proposal because he is detested by the universe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good point. Um, So there are four parts to this chapter and only three rituals. So what's going on there? Well, the answer is we talk more about familiars. We get another example of a relationship between a familiar and their practitioner. But this one is very different to the previous one. Yeah. And I mean, it's worth pointing out. We saw how familiars um, impact domains as well. So familiars seem to be Mm. the most prominent feature um, in this chapter. Um, mm. But they're also the most intimate and um, flexible of all the relationships. So it kind of makes sense that they'd need the most uh, explanation. Yeah. So this, so where, where Annabelle and Tromos before were, were like a kind of a best case or a really great example of what it can look like to have a familiar. Yeah. Here we see Lacey and Vic who are, I, I, I mean, 
the worst case, right? <laughs> Assuming that you aren't dead, this is probably the worst case. And maybe even this is worse than if you were dead. Yeah, it's definitely... I mean, like, I think I feel more sorry for the Briar girl as a practitioner. Uh, mm. But, you know, then, then I do for Lacey, but I feel the most sorry for Vic in this situation. He definitely yeah. drew the short straw. And I guess Lacey's kind of being okay and, and trying to help out, but... Um, it's interesting how little she sort of just accepts responsibility for how this is all her fault. Mm. We'll get into well, that. Well, let's, let's, yeah, let's talk about the, the plot as it were. Um, so Lacey and Vic were high school sweethearts. Lacey had a family that knew a bit about being a practitioner. Um, and so she had kind of dabbled with the practice. Um, yeah. Vic, who was a, a naturally talented baseball star, uh, Got, eventually Lacey and Vic got together and Lacey started teaching him how to use controlled possession to make himself be kind of possessed by animalistic spirits during games, which would make him kind of stronger and faster um, and yeah. a better player. Except <laughs> eventually it went bad. Uh, a spirit that possessed him kind of took control and he blacked out, waking up having murdered and eaten somebody and the spirit now is kind of very inherently tied into who he is. He is half spirit, half human, basically. Yeah, he blows that line between human and other. Um, as yeah. you, see, like you said they're high school sweethearts. I very much got the impression reading this that uh, Lacey may have helped things along with regards mm. to them originally hooking up. Like she, She's constantly talking about how she sort of cheated her way to the top and Vic would seem like part of that. Uh, so, yeah, she cheated the system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't explicitly say it, but you do get the impression that she's cheated the system in many ways. This, and that could be her one. getting together with the the jock, the prom <laughs> king, or whatever. You know, um, it makes sense as a as a narrative. Beat. Well, and Vic explicitly sort of says, "Oh, it was like the first time we said hello. I was just instantly in love, and we've like never been apart since." <laughs> which just reeks of uh, suspicious play uh, to me. Yeah. No, they're just high school sweethearts, Elliot. It's fine, and nothing will go wrong for them, I'm sure. Um, yeah, so so basically after that, Lacey and Vic's life has been about trying to keep Vic as much Vic as possible while this primal spirit gains more ground, basically, as part of him. Um, and one of the things that they did was make Vic into Lacey's familiar as a way to kind of bind them together and also contain the spirit as much as possible. Yeah. And and so it's interesting. I'd be very curious to know how much of Lacey's motivation behind all of this was genuine and how much was karmic or if there's overlap there because it seems like uh, she would be karmically responsible for what happens to Vic. Um, mm. But it, it's interesting. We learn a lot about how um, like Vic didn't really go to jail for his murder because they did the familiar ritual and so the universe kind of conspired to keep them together. So there's like this karmic tie uh between a person and their familiar that helps to keep them together yeah in the sense that um if vic went to jail he would have been kind of too far away from her and that that is isn't balanced with their tie um and so (laughs) lacey gives an example of there was a pregnancy scare for a while and she suspects that the universe was trying to have her move to a town just outside of a prison so that vic would be in prison and she would be just (laughs) outside of it and they'd be you know close but uh, she dealt with that, and then there hasn't been anything else since. Um, yeah. And so what's interesting, like, I got the impression that their relationship is not good. Um, yeah. Just from, uh, yeah. I from mean... the things they were openly <laughs> saying in front of each other. And I wonder, like, 
how like like if you say negative things about your familiar is that bad karma and maybe they're trying to avoid doing that like you know mm. what because because they they sort of they avoid confronting each other about anything but there's all these sort of passive aggressive pieces of phrasing that definitely imply um blame or or, or something between uh each other so like i wonder i wonder if we're trying to hint at part of the relationship between familiar and practitioner there yeah i i think it's interesting to think about why this why there's a fourth beat here why there's a fourth part of this chapter um it, because it's it's so depressing right <laughs> like it really is depressing um and specifically this is the part that the the interlude leaves us on yeah uh, and so this is our final impression of the chapter and we know that this chapter is exists to give us context on the rituals that Blake might be about to do the fact that it ends on this note feels like a bad sign yeah it's it it feels like it's a bit of a warning you know like we we sort of had the positive example very textbook example kind of creepy example and now we have the just the this shit can go wrong if you're not careful example yeah yeah i and not just the familiar relationship which has kind of gone wrong in this example but even just being in the practice in general we get a quite tangible version of how that can go badly yeah um yeah, well, it's a depressing note to leave the chapter on, but that's just how it goes, I guess. Um, that's how it ends. Yeah. Uh, so what are your overall thoughts on this chapter, Elliot? Um, yeah, I mean, I liked it. I think it's great, like, just just giving us bits of a textbook as a way to just dump information shouldn't be a good thing, but somehow it was. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I really do think it is because there's just so many... Uh, you know, literary techniques that are literal in the world of pact. Right? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, we just get all these really fun beats. Um, we haven't even talked about the fact that there's a, a full on Harry Potter reference halfway through this chapter, <laughs> which I found great. Um, yeah, I didn't even notice it until you pointed it out to me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and I mean, also, I think part of it is, is uh, there's three distinct styles um, within this chapter. Like we have the interviews... And we have like this hypothetical example we follow that kind of intersperses, um, you know, textbook explaining with like an example. And then we have, uh, I don't even know the best term to describe the implement one. Um, but yeah, it, it's basically great. just an explicit textbook. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's not even just like a normal thing. Like it's got all these these categories that work off each other. So you kind of have fun reading it because you're trying to understand exactly what it's telling you, which isn't super easy. It's all so symbolic. Um yeah. yeah, it's great. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's a it's just a fun chapter that really kind of does things differently. Yeah. Um, so we we mentioned before that Wildboat assigned his readers some homework, <laughs> um, and we thought we'd kind of dive in and see what how people did. I guess we're grading the homework now. <laughs> yep, what's, uh, what's be harsh? Um, so I I want to pull out, I I pulled out three specific examples that I liked, um, and I want to kind of talk about aspects of each of them that I liked. Uh, so the first one is a a user called Sam Hain, who decided to examine, uh, the tome as an implement, um, and talked about how the tome is a book, right? And so it has these connotations of being like similar to a library in that the user is a, a kind of fan of knowledge and, and, uh, knowledge through power but a limited library, right? It's not a yeah. full library of books. It's just one solitary book. Yeah. Well, this all ties back a little bit to when we thought Maggie's implement might be um, 
her scrapbook, which, you know, got disproven last chapter, but the idea of like her scrapbook I thought was great because it was such a hodgepodge collection of knowledge that really suited her because it wasn't just a tome. It was like a tome that she was haphazardly expanding, which I thought was very (laughs) reflective of how she's gotten into this world. It even, so um, there was a comment in in our discussion thread for our previous chapter, Damages 2.6, talking about how Maggie revealed her implement as this like sacrificial knife and how it didn't kind of make sense. Um, yeah. And <laughs> thinking about it and thinking about this example of the tome and Maggie's kind of tweak of that with the scrapbook, it almost seems like the knife doesn't make sense and the scrapbook does to the extent that she could have lied about her implement and our original <laughs> fan theory could be right and the scrapbook is actually her implement. Well, she wouldn't be able to lie about that, so... Well, I know, you know, <laughs> but something, right? I haven't, I didn't read through that section where she revealed her implement, but okay. maybe there's some kind of trickery where you know how it is. Anyway. Sure. Um, yeah, so talking about the... T- <laughs> I just think the scrapbook does fit her personality so well, okay? Um, yeah, anyway. it does seem to so far. Uh, so this kind of tome as a source of knowledge, you know, it's limited. It's it's maybe secret or important to the to the holder um, or personal, like something like a, a journal. Uh, I just thought that was a, a, an interesting uh, an interesting point yeah. to focus on. For yeah. The tome. Well, and I, I'd also like to to sort of extend off what what they were saying. I think it also sort of show it's all about preparedness. Like you don't mm. you don't sort of go and improvise an ad hoc with a book. Um, you know, it, it's very much an implement that suggests premeditation. Uh, to me yeah yeah um and and kind of passivity rather than direct aggression yeah um, yeah the next one i pulled out was a user called subak who examined the lantern which i think of the list of implements is probably one of the weirdest ones to think about right <laughs> yeah yeah um it's so out of place it so doesn't make sense and subak kind of talks about this and expands on it saying that because lanterns are <laughs> something that just doesn't make sense in the modern day, they would be a sign of like reclusive practitioners, right? Um, mm. Almost to the extent of a lantern being a, an implement of like a, a lighthouse keeper in, a, in an interesting way. Uh, specifically, the light serves to reveal the unknown. So maybe they're also about kind of sharing wisdom or as a beacon. So maybe they're all about kind of gathering people to them and, and amassing power that way. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It It, it seems like... It's interesting because Subak went for sort of reclusive, whereas to me, a lantern symbolically seems like a very social thing. Like you light a lantern to bring people together. So Mm. it's this kind of uh, like paradox. And this is sort of where I think the fluidity of uh, symbolism in the world of Pact may come into it. Like what a lantern said about you 300 years ago might be very different to what it says now as a practitioner. Yeah, and I think there's a, a definite difference between what kind of lantern it is, right? Like, is it is it an old school lantern? Is it anachronistic, or is it something that makes sense as as a as something to gather around, as something to kind of lead the way, right? Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. There's a number of different tweaks that you could make on just the kind of lantern you have that would really radically shift its meaning. Yeah, and I mean, what's interesting is is how things like these textbooks sort of reinforce existing interpretations like if if everybody reads the same textbook about what each implement means Mm. i feel like it would become harder to shake those things uh, like shake those preconceptions it's interesting yeah yeah um the last one i want to pull out was again sam hayne good job sam full marks (laughs) on your homework um (laughs) examining the ring as as a as an implement um so the ring is kind of very 
opposite to a lantern in that a lantern would be impossible to hide out and about, but a ring yeah. is so common that it it can be used as by practitioners who are like more you know more in in modern society yeah um so because of that you can be a practitioner that uh, has a ring that is more secretive right so you can be a practitioner that operates in the shadows or is more of a puppet master than directly aggressive well um, i'd say it's almost it's it, it it's hiding in plain sight like you don't hide a ring you just have a ring on like a normal person it's not it's not about it's not about just being secretive they're the sort of person who just you you know they'd be hiding in plain sight um yeah i i think something that sam Hang didn't go into here which which i think would be relevant for a ring is the tie to marriage or to a connection right like rings can be obviously wedding rings but there can be rings that are like you know signets of groups or like college graduations <laughs> or, or whatever it is super bowls you know? um, um yeah, yeah. It, it's you're right it's very much it's a bit of a status symbol like they're they're often worn to identify you in some way um yeah 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 i think depending again depending on the type of ring it, <laughs> it it makes sense for me for it to be something that is very uh used by a practitioner who is very focused on connections or has a strong kind of base of connections that they really identify with um so you know a, a duchamp as would be a perfect example of a of a ring using practitioner to me yeah no that makes sense yeah um well <laughs> this we knew this episode would go on long elliot yeah. there's just so much fun theory to talk about in this chapter yeah this this chapter was at a bit of an amusement park for just fun speculating yeah. and diving in because it gave us a lot of information is, uh, but yeah. but not all of it yeah and it really pointed out hey this is what you should think about this is what you should theorize about talk yeah. about that thing right which is always fun for us in a chapter um <laughs> Man, this one's turned into our longest episode. <laughs> um, anyway, thank you everyone for joining us and listening to us uh, ramble on about different fan theories for what these <laughs> what these rituals could be. Um, if you missed our episode last week, you will not have heard that we have now joined the Doof Media uh network which we're very happy to be a part of i realize i've been pronouncing it very australian as doof yeah me too doof <laughs> as they say it uh, in the u.s <laughs> which uh, has gotten us some comments um <laughs> we're, we're very happy to be a part of the of the doof media network uh, and you can now directly support um deep impact by going to the doof media patreon which is patreon.com slash doof media um there you can check out some of the other great shows and support a network of podcasts that are making some really awesome things Yep, uh, and while you're there, don't forget to stop by Wildbo's Patreon, which is patreon.com slash wildbo, um, because obviously, you know, he's the actual person who wrote Pact, so none of this would be happening without him. Yep, um, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can check out our discussion threads or our Twitter, uh, or there's a contact form on our website, which is mediamdpodcast.com. Uh, that discussion thread link will probably be in the in the uh, description down below. And, you know, and speaking of MediaMD, uh, we just had an episode of that come out yesterday as of when this comes out. Uh, and in that, we're yep. discussing the movie Apocalypto, which was an interesting discussion. Yeah. Uh, one of the best movies that I've seen, especially when you know the people that are involved. <laughs> um, and that's my teaser trailer for that episode. So go check it out if you want to know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, our next episode of Deep Impact will be on Friday the 8th of February. So we'll see you in a few days. See ya. See ya.